Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, David. Welcome to the Brave Show. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Well, it's always good to hang out with you again. After how many years have we known each other since? Uh, oh man, since conjunct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since the conjunct days, it's like ten years ago actually, and a bit. We're celebrating a ten-year anniversary soon. Yeah, time flies. Yeah, so I'm excited to share your journey because you have an interesting transition. Not just as a consultant, but also as someone who has joined the civil service. So mm. very much the opposite direction from many of our peers, <laughs> as well as you know doing some very good work in the social sector as well. Definitely would love to talk a little bit more about your point of view, what you've learned along the way. Sure, I'm happy to share. So, David, how would you introduce yourself professionally? How I usually introduce myself is I'm someone who spent time in all three sectors: the people, public, and private sectors. I generally think of myself these days as someone who builds capability, both in the people sector through conjunct and in the public sector. My day job is a civil servant. Generally, I'm a policymaker type role because there are many jobs in the civil service. I'm a policymaker, but aside from the day job of policymaking, I realize a big part of the value that I can add is also strengthening the organization. So not just doing the the day job, but also making sure that organization can carry on even after I've left. Because my role is, I'm an administrative officer in AO in the civil service, which means I change jobs every few years. Which means the organization has to be stronger after I leave it, and that's one of the things that I find interesting about my role. Awesome, David. So let's go back in time. So there you are, Duke, you're a student, and you decide to become a management consultant. Did you have any idea what a management consultant was, <laughs> and why did you choose that job? Yeah. As you know, my background at Duke is I majored in English literature and economics. I love English literature. I love reading.、Uh, when I was a kid, I was a big nerd for all kinds of literature, especially poetry. At one point, I thought about becoming a professor, and then I realized that academia is really tough in terms of employment because it's tenured, so you're a professor for life, and professors don't die very young. So the employment rate, the on the on ramp is not that great. That's what I realized. I just looked at the numbers and like, yeah, that's not that great. And I think nowadays kids know what consulting is, but at the time I, I was a bit more swaggered. I didn't. But in my third year of uni, one of my friends took part in a case competition. I didn't know what that was at the time, but she wanted to make a team of five or six people. So she invited me to join in, and I said I'll help out. And I took part in a case competition, whatever that was at the time. And it was actually really fun, right? They give you a stack of fake、uh, of of documents, and you sort of help the client. And I presented to Deloitte, which was a sponsoring consulting firm that did that. And I think we came in fourth, which was really exciting and really fun. And that's when I started to look into this profession called consulting. And the more consultants I met from the various firms, the more I was impressed by the caliber and the structured way that consultants think. I could ask them any question, and even if they couldn't answer it, they could respond to it intelligently. Yeah, and. That was enough to get you hooked and start recruiting for management consulting at BCG. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I I was so excited that I applied for internships. So between my third and fourth year, I did do an internship at Bain in Atlanta, Georgia, because it,、uh, it was the nearest like city to Duke. 
Unfortunately, I graduated during the 08-09 Great Financial Crisis. So after that, employment in the US was very hard to come by. But I came back to Singapore and that's where I, I had my first job at BCG Singapore and had a great, amazing two years with the partners and associates there. What was it like those two years? What are your fun memories from that time? Oh, so many. So of course, the consulting lifestyle is pretty jet-setting. It can be tiring, which is something that I'll talk about later and why I eventually left. But the problem-solving aspect of it is really fun. And when I joined consulting, I actually told, my final interview was with one of the partners and I actually told him, actually, I'm not super interested in business, to be very blunt, but I enjoy problem-solving. And you can probably see in the way that I talk through the cases in a very logical fashion. I don't have a lot of business jargon, but I'm just trying to think through it logically. And I think he laughed because I was being frank. I, uh, I was, wasn't sure if that was a good idea or not, but he had asked me basically, where do you see yourself five years from now? So I actually told him, actually, I'm not a huge business person, but I really enjoy the problem solving. And I really like the way you guys consult things. And I want to learn that. At BCG, in those two years, I definitely did learn a lot of how do you structure your thoughts? How do you break something ambiguous down? When you don't have a lot of experience as a young, fresh grad, advising a CEO who's two times your age and in a company that you have a sector that you may not have a lot of experience in, but you learn fast, you apply some common sense, you take guidance from your partners and managing project manager, you piece things together. And of course, uh, finally, you learn how to distill your thoughts and communicate clearly to your client in a way that they understand. That's also another major skill that I picked up with me and still carry with me every job I go to. How to distill six months of work into six minutes of clear talking to someone who has not spent six months doing that work that you just did. (laughs) (laughs) Useful skill. Useful skill indeed. I definitely remember those days. And I think there's something that is interesting because I remember my rate of learning was really fast because they really expected you to ramp up really quickly and had this really wonderful training academy dynamic where just pumping information to you, right? I still remember I drop in and then they're like, okay, here's all the things you need to learn. And then you're going to your first project in two weeks and you're like, what? And then, you know, you shadow someone. Yeah. There's a very strong performance management system and feedback cycle. And I think it was like monthly feedback sessions, quarterly sit downs. Mm. Yeah, it could be every couple of weeks even depending on your project manager. Yeah, I just love the feedback. It was interesting because I think going in as your first job after army, (laughs) it feels like it's almost like the norm, right? And then you leave and you're like, oh, that's not the norm at all. Yeah. What, what did you take away from that experience? And looking back, what, what were the things that you learned from being at uh, BCG? One of the, actually, I took a, a lot of skills with me that I still find very useful today. So the first one is actually breaking things down in a structured manner. And nowadays, outside the consulting bubble, I call it ignorance management. Because as I mentioned just now, I change jobs every few years. And so... What happens then is I end up in an organization where almost everyone knows more than me about that, their job or that particular role. Because in, in the civil service, a lot of these people have been there for years, if not decades. And these are people that I have supervisory, like I'm their boss. It is not easy. And I come in with humility knowing that I, I know a lot less. But I need to learn very fast and learn to enough of a degree that I can value at very quickly to justify the organization sort of like parachuting me at a middle management level in charge of a team of junior staff, but who have been there for a long time. So ignorance management is something I learned in consulting. Like what are the key questions I need to know so that as an 80-20 rule, I, I know these key facts, I can kind of 
not fake my way, but like know enough about the, uh, this sector to discuss it intelligently. If I talk about when I was in consulting, I did a pharmaceuticals case, right? Like, okay, I need to know some things about the pharmaceutical sector so I don't sound totally dumb in front of my CEO client. Like pharmaceuticals, the research, the R&D cost billions and then the pills take like one cent each to make after that. So it's a, diff- it's a very different cost structure from hotels or any other industry. So you have to know like five key facts, 10 key facts and every new case, you know, the knowledge management people will send you the, the dummy deck for this sector. So you at least get the speed on the sector and if preferably even the client's uh, basic financials and basic situation they're in. So that, again, you can parachute in and immediately or very quickly start value adding to the whole situation. That sort of frame of mind is very useful in my particular role in the public service, trying to, like I mentioned, build organizations. I need to understand the context. To understand the context, there's no way I can cram decades of experience into a few months, but at least I, I know what are the key facts. What are the key challenges this organization faces? What are the key constraints? What are the key bottlenecks? Okay, let me try in my short stint of two to three years in this organization to address all these key bottlenecks. Again, 80-20 rule, in three years' time, I'm out, but I've made something of a difference in this organization. Well, I love the phrase ignorance management and problem solving. And so that was something that you, in parallel, also made a decision to join the civil service. So why did you do that? I mean, it's very contrarian because... In Singapore, with the scholar program, there are so many people who went to university expecting to join the civil service. And then they kind of realize and kind of plot through university, <laughs> feeling like some of them are happy and some of them feel more reluctant. Mm. They do a couple of years in the civil service and they head out after into the consulting world. Mm. So you're one of the few swimming upriver. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different direction, to be, to be sure, yeah. When I say BCG, and I'm sure in the other consulting firms, they are as well ex-civil servants, I met them. And the reason why they joined, actually, they shared was I wanted to learn more. And where in my organization I was from, I felt like the, the learning had plateaued off. And I think that's a perfectly valid reason to, to want to jump ships, that hunger and desire to learn more. In my case, the reason why I, I went in the opposite direction was because, as I mentioned just now, um, I wasn't super interested in business and business problems. I think people who enjoy them um, definitely deserve to be in consulting. And for my batchmates who stayed there, some of them are already partner level and clearly they've thrived and that's the whole their jam. For me, business was, as I mentioned, I enjoy solving these problems and intellectually taking these apart and, and asking the right questions and doing the analysis. That is not to the level of passion. That's level like, right, this is really cool. Let me like spend energy on this. But consulting, as you know, is a tough physical profession. You work late nights, you fly around and to be willing to put up with those kinds of costs and those costs increase as you age and your body is not quite like it once was. Those costs, you only pay those costs if you're really passionate about business or value adding to your clients. And at some level, after a while, I realized actually I enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it enough to be willing to pay that kind of cost. And so I started looking around to where else I could take my skill sets and put them to service somewhere else. And I found the public service to be somewhere where I really could. As I mentioned, the skill sets are very similar. Applying ignorance management, trying to solve problems, advising the ministers, trying to put the public interests aligned with various technocratic considerations. That is also a very consulting thing to do. They don't call policymakers consultants, but internally, in my mind, I see a lot of similarities. And of course, I really enjoy the idea that I can build organization capability. Even better, it's, it's for the country, it's for your fellow Singaporeans. So there's the element of service, which I found also very meaningful. And maybe this also leads a bit to consulting, but being able to put these skills 
to something that I really am, am passionate about. Not that there's anything wrong with business, but like personally, I find it meaningful applied to charities, applied to the public sector, right? These skill sets of solving problems that will really move the needle and help humanity or at least society or my fellow men move forward. Yeah, and that's something I remember us talking quite a lot about because the scale of impact is very different because at a company consultant, you're helping a multinational corporation or a large company deal with its customers and operations about profitability. But taking the same problem-solving skill set, solve problems for citizens, it's a different dynamic because it's a long, multiple decade, infinite horizon where <laughs> these policy changes that you're building out are going to stick. You know, today, we're still living with decisions that were made in 1965 or before. Yeah. And I think a lot of the decisions we make go into cascade into the future. How do you feel about working on problems that are different, right? Citizens, not customers, mm. much longer time horizons <laughs> versus you know, this year's or next year's public uh, annual report. Mm. How do you think about that? Oh, I think it is a different ethos. And, and that's also something I noticed when I joined this, the civil service. And I met a lot of people that I was inspired by. There are a lot of really solid public service leaders here in the civil service in Singapore. And Singapore's lucky to, to have some of these guys, to be honest. One of the lessons I learned that really resonate with me is the idea that we are stewards of the system. And as you mentioned, the time horizon is a major factor. I'm working on a project that previous generations of public officers have worked on. I can look at files dating back to the 70s, 80s, and I'm building on this opus of work, right? Stand on the shoulders of giants and all that. And sometimes they've been working on this for decades and I'm the lucky guy who happens to be like the finishing, write the finishing touch or write the finishing paper. And not that I claim credit for all that, but like it happens to be me and therefore that there's some kind of glory or prestige or just credit. But I'm very honest in saying, actually, without the decades of papers that I have read and absorbed and the thinking that's gone through years and decades before, I wouldn't have been in this position to deal with the finishing blow, the, the finishing touch. So there's that ethos of someone else was a steward and I'm just inheriting this system. And by that token, I also must pay it forward because people's past work has benefited me. And I'm actually doing research, thinking, writing notes that will be archived and, and passed down for the next generation of public officers, whoever inherits my job after me, for example. And the opus of work that um, I leave behind that may not be fully complete by the time I've left, but will be inherited by someone else, that person can take it and take it forward to the next step. And maybe in a few decades' time, it'll be done and they can claim credit for it. That's totally fine by me. I'm not here to claim credit, but I'm here to contribute to that larger system. And if it takes years, decades even, someone else can take my fruit and claim it. I don't mind because to be fair, I did that to someone else from decades past. And that is just the stewardship and that ethos that I find marvelous about the public service. Amazing. So stewardship, that's I think the best part about it. And that's where the critics kind of charge in and say, mm -hmm. well, Stewardship is this code name for bureaucracy. <laughs> and bureaucracy is a code for traditionalism. And mm. there's this push by society for innovation, both on technology, social change. And you and I have interfaced with that, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Based on our prior work as intermediaries, as bridges, and also as catalysts for yeah, contract consulting. Mm. And without going into the contract consulting side yet, which we'll get into later, sure. how do you think government should balance, I think, the need for what you just talked about, stewardship mm. versus innovation? And what are the challenges and what are the dynamics to be thoughtful about? Yeah, that's a very good question. And while there's no straightforward answer, there's a very clear response and direction that I think we need to move in. 
And the concept that I want to lay out that will help answer this is the idea of polarity thinking. Anyone listening can just Google polarity thinking. It's a concept in organization development in OD, which is a field I've studied for the last few years in order to help transform organizations. The concept around polarity thinking is that it refuses false binaries, like we must either be stable and conservative so that we don't screw up, or we are either innovative and move fast and break things and, and whatnot. And that can sometimes be a false dichotomy because there's no reason an organization cannot be conservative and safe for things where we cannot afford to fail. Like you cannot afford to have make a mistake when it comes to life or death situations. Uh, when it comes to like the trains must run on time. There's not a non-negotiable for making sure Singapore is a well-effective run country. The lights, the water, those are the basics. You can't mess those up. But there are also other matters which are more negotiable there is room for experimentation and there are smart ways to experiment in a sandbox fashion. MAS is famous for being able to do like sandboxes and allowing like fintech firms to offer products in an experimental way, but it will not pose a systemic risk to the whole financial system because they have firewalled this experiment. And that's a smart way to experiment with products, whether you're a company or even a government. It's just smart experimentation. Even MNCs don't want to mess up their core product and destroy their brand overnight. So they find smart ways of testing. They call it the startup culture. It's fail fast, fail cheap. Fail cheap means don't jeopardize the whole systemic company when you're, when you're part of a larger MNC or government. And I think that's how we balance, as you said, the conservatism, the fact that we cannot fail our citizens for certain key things. We have to deliver some of the obvious things, like don't screw up. If there are failures, those are inexcusable. Experimentation, and lessons learned from experiments, those are not considered failures. Those are called experiments. When the experiment has an outcome, whether it's the outcome you want or not, scientists don't say the experiment was a failure. They just say that the null hypothesis was rejected or was not rejected. They don't say the experiment was a failure. In fact, whatever finding your experiment comes up with, your experiment was a success. The only failed experiment is if the data is inconclusive because you screwed up the experiment and biased the results. Like you contaminated the bacterial culture. So I think when you talk about experiments, if they're done intelligently, such as by ring fencing, such as by managing risk, you can actually situate that in a larger, so-called more conservative organization. Mm, amazing. And one of the things that has been interesting is that, you know, you and I have done this because we worked together for so many years, is that it feels like at work at government, you've been a steward and you think about the organizational behavior. And what we always enjoy was that conjunct consulting, we were always doing experiments on pushing forward and catalyzing stuff yeah. in all the other areas at the much smaller level, at the beneficiary level, population level, yeah. at the social worker level. So there's been an interesting dynamic there for us to experiment. I'm so curious, we spent so many years kind of like consulting for so many social sector organizations and I was just like, learned a lot. I'm wondering what you took away from working with hundreds of social enterprises and charities in Singapore. Like, mm. What would be your key takeaways from working and consulting for so many of them? Well, this is going to sound a bit like a cliche because this is something you, you live through and it gets, this lesson gets deeper. But really, the thing that really makes a difference is the people and the relationships between people. I say this not to dismiss the need to be smart, to have the right solutions and to analyze because that's the part where as a consultant and later as a policymaker type civil servant, I thought that was important. And it is important. But once you have the right solutions, you have rigorous and robust analytics and the solution, you actually need to cascade that to people. So your communication skills and more importantly, your trust building skills, uh, which I think is distinct from communications as a skill set, is actually really important. Because so many times in both professional consulting and nonprofit consulting, you have the consultant has the right answer. 
but the client doesn't quite buy in for various reasons that they might or might not say out loud. So some resistances from the client might be like, this solution is new, it seems radical, and organizations, whether government or not, can sometimes be conservative, right? So if it's a new idea, they are maybe a bit scared to try it. And the thing is, it's the human being that makes the decision. It's the human being who has like, whether it's said out loud or not, insecurities, certain narratives in their own mind, some, sometimes they're not even aware of it. So that's where, again, OD and emotional literacy really come to play as a consultant or advisor when you want to change someone's mind, understand where they're coming from. So I call that kind of professional empathy. People think empathy means touchy-feely, but really, when you talk about professional, tactical, executive empathy, it is understanding where that person comes from. Sometimes, they, whether they say it out loud or don't say it out loud, it's better if you can tease it out. So it's almost like, I'm not saying you're a psychiatrist or a therapist, but being safe enough a person that they confide in you and you sort of unpack their thinking and help them come to the right decision. That is actually just as important as the answer itself. And that's something I picked up from Kanjam from the so many clients that we've worked with and spoken to. Yeah, I think it's exactly spot on. And I think their superpower is that they're not just doing that one-on-one, which is, you know, consultants, you know, you just do that one-on-one with a CEO. If the CEO buys in, you're good to go, right? Yeah, casket, yeah. And then you, you know, and then you work your way up or down and use authority or rank. I think the superpower for these organizations is that they are doing that with their constituency, their population. Mm. And they're able to channel that trust almost bottom up, acting not only as stewards, but also as paragons or symbols or magnifying glasses where they focus the energy mm. of the population into a very dynamic, solvable chunk. That sounds very technocratic you know, from a yeah, problem yeah. that actually must be solved for. But also I think from a representation and community aspect, yeah. which is they're able to represent in a community on those dimensions that they stand to represent. And I think that's really interesting because it's almost like contrarian, right? Mm. Very yin and yang. So much of corporate or even technocratic government is about solutions first, yeah. problems first, and people cascaded. And this is the opposite, which is people first. Yeah. And then let's talk about the solutions second. Yes. And it's honestly a two-way street in the best places. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like, do you have any fun memories from our time at Conjunct Consulting together back in the day? Personally, the aspect of Conjunct that I really enjoyed was mentoring the students. Partly that's because my role at Conjunct was the just as the founding training director to I developed the syllabus in training. Partly it's because that was one of my passions. Remember, I did say at the start, I wanted to be an English professor. Not just because I like English literature, but also I actually do enjoy teaching, explaining, sharing my thoughts. Not that I know more, but it's just that I share my perspective. And if that helps people, then I regard that as that's just very good. So I enjoyed mentoring and, and teaching generations of students. Since Conjunct's been for 10 years, that means uh, our first gen of students are, have been in the workforce for a long time. So many ex-conjunct students are now working adults in consulting. I think we've got some of our alumni in McKinsey. We've got some of them in the government also. Some of them I've worked with before professionally, now as fellow civil servants. And some are uh, actually now professionally working in the nonprofit sector as well. So that's really amazing to see that as a, I'm not a professional teacher, but I've had this teaching-like uh, effect and I get to see my ex-students do so many amazing things with their lives. So yeah, definitely remembers that. I think that was actually something that we had been 
dreaming about back in the early days. We were like, oh, theoretically, if we keep going, <laughs> in the future, we'll be able to create an alumni network where we're all in positions of power. <laughs> like we all collaborate, help each other. Yeah. Like a conjunct Kiretsu or conjunct mafia, similar to the NOC mafia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it's starting to see some stories of that nowadays where there's like conjunct alumni just dealing with each other on issues in the social sector. Yeah. Which was like funny to hear. Because it's just like, <laughs> yeah, I know. You know. Things get more faster when you're doing that. Yeah, again, it's because it's the circle of trust. And the reason why alumni networks work in the old days, it's called the old boys network, now it's the alumni network, is because there's that trust. Again, goes back to what I said, people don't just buy intellectually correct solutions. Even if you tell me something, if you're a stranger, and I intellectually check your answer and it works out intellectually. But if you're a stranger, I'll take it differently than if you're my friend and it still checks out intellectually, right? The answer is intellectually correct. So it really is that trust and relationship, which I find this. No, no good substitute for because humans, there's, I have no time to go into neuroscience, but the brain is just wired that way. In, back in the days when we were dealing with saber-toothed tigers and whatever, you do need interactions with your fellow man. We are social animals. That's so true. And I always say like, you know, Teach for America has two levels of impact. One, of course, is the teaching side of the students. And the second, of course, is the alumni network has been obviously transformational and their ability to give people exposure to what disadvantaged populations actually are facing on the educational front and giving that level, boost of motivation and the network for something to happen. In time to come, when we celebrate our next 10-year anniversary, I'm sure oh, yeah. we see more fruits of our labor coming to pass. So starting to kind of think through some things here and wrap things up here. You know, obviously, I wanted to ask, you've gone through some stuff and I wanted to ask you about when have there been times that you have been brave and had to overcome challenges in your life? Oh, many times, both as a consultant and in, in the civil servant. But generally, I'll give some specific examples, but generally I notice moments of courage defined when you're not sure how the other person will react. Usually the other person is a superior officer or some a, a boss. But you decide to speak because it is for what you think is the greater good and that you have some faith that the outcome will be positive because maybe your boss you think will understand or that at least your colleagues will understand and history will prove that you had the good intentions. Whether you're right or wrong is not really the point. It's that you had good intentions we wanted to contribute. But specifically, I do remember a time when at BCG, we had a case where we felt the client was asking not quite the right questions. I mean, they were paying us the usual fees. So we're obviously happy to solve any problem they want us to solve. But we actually thought, we looked at their figures and the financial figures and said, actually, instead of asking us to solve question X, you need to ask us to solve question Y. That is actually a more valuable question in, like, in dollar terms to ask, even, even though that's not the question you're asking us. We think it's a better use of your money because you're paying us if you ask the other question and we're happy to do the work. And we actually had to say this a few times because question Y, the question we thought they should be asking, was a bit more sensitive. As I said, human beings are not completely called robots. They had to consider whether or not they wanted to change some aspects of their company. And of course, when you are the founding generation or someone who's been in the company for a long time, there is a certain bias or certain preference and it makes you reluctant or to, to pursue certain avenues of inquiry. But we actually showed them repeatedly, gently and respectfully that if you ask question why, it is really a more valuable question. If we are able to provide you with a good and solid answer to that, you can really increase your company's growth. Question X is a fine question, but in terms of dollar value unlocked, you are much better served if we helped you answer question Y. For us at BCG, it would be the same either way, right? You're still paying us for, for our time, but we really wanted to add value to the client. 
And we had that courage to speak up and actually advocate in our client's best interest, even though, again, they were initially a bit reluctant. But over time, we were able to persuade them around to our point of view. And to me, that is an example of bravery. In the civil service, also similarly, whenever I have a contrarian or different point of view, I will speak up in that room because I think the room needs to have diversity of views. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying if I see it from where I'm sitting, this is how I see this policy. And this is how maybe some other Singaporeans might see this policy. Right or wrong, how someone perceives something is unique to them. And you, you can't invalidate that, right? It's called live the experience. And you can't dictate how someone chooses to perceive something. So when I share that point of view, is to help the room get more intelligent. It's not to prove that I'm smarter than everyone. It's to contribute to the discussion in the room. And one of the things that I really enjoy about consulting is everyone's equal, whether you're a partner or associate. If you say something with, that's based on data, people will take that and the room sort of absorbs that information and discusses like, like some hive mind trying to achieve a, a better answer. And I think that's an act of bravery in pursuit of something greater, as I said. And I really enjoy those moments. Thanks, David. I really appreciate that. I'd love to wrap up by summarizing the three big themes. The first was, I think, thank you so much for sharing your professional journey about how you accidentally became a consultant based on a case competition. <laughs> yeah. Which actually is a, a common story, actually, because nobody really knows what a consultant is. So everyone just kind of like falls into it for some reason, yeah. including myself. <laughs> yeah. And I love what you shared about the key things you learned along with the way, right? For example, really talking about, I love the phrase ignorance management, i.e. structured problem solving, which is how do you go about to learn what you don't know and to learn what you need to know. Mm -hmm. I just love that. That was a great phrase. I'm sure people are going to start using that in time to come. I'm <laughs> going to start using that phrase now. Awesome. It's impossible for us to all know everything all at once, but it is possible to manage our ignorance in a way that's responsible, right? And get smart quickly on to the extent that's needed for the project or the problem at hand. Yep. The second thing I really liked was actually your obvious expertise on thinking about how government works and some of the things you had to learn slash unlearn, which is like thinking about moving on a much larger time scale, the stewardship of what has been done in the past and what will be done in the future based on your work. And I love that sense of time horizon. And also, I also love the acknowledgement that there's that tension, I think, by everyone, including within the government for more innovation, etc. And I think you frame it nicely as to avoid the false dichotomy and using the concept of polarity thinking as a way to make sure that whatever is mission critical continues to stay up and running versus those that are areas that we need to have more space for experimentation does actually get that space for experimentation. And lastly, I think I love a lot of the uh, personal tips and advice from our shared experience together. And I love what you shared about obviously contract consulting and the nice brainstorm about reminiscing about what we envisioned was that larger alumni network or helping each other to make Singapore a better place together. And it's nice to actually kind of like frame it up as, yeah, it's really about the circle of trust, the exposure, the training by yourself, by yours truly, uh, what so many generations of students and professionals getting trained into the social sector and the dynamics within it. And also I love the dynamics around, as a result, like a lot of our shared learnings about how to articulate problems, how to say this problem is something we should tackle. What is the lived experience? Mm -hmm. How do you perceive the problem versus what is the problem yes. versus how do I perceive the problem? <laughs> yes. And lots of small tips along the way. So I really appreciate you, David, for shopping a lot of knowledge in this podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. 
Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.